0: Hello, my name is Rory O'Connor, and I am president of the International Association for Suicide Prevention. I'm delighted to welcome you to our new podcast series called Reach In, Reach Out. We're hoping to encourage safe conversations around suicide and suicide prevention, and we aim to bring together the different aspects of the work that we do, providing a global perspective, but crucially, also sharing stories of hope. A fundamental part of our work is engaging with people with lived and living experience of suicide, either through their own personal experiences of suicidality or through loss and grief. This will be a central strand running through the entire podcast series. Given the sensitive nature of the subject matter, it is vital that we all prioritize our well-being. So please practice self-care. I hope that you find that podcasts of interest. And we really look forward to hearing what you have to think. Thank you. Hello and welcome to the latest episode of YASP's Reach In, Reach Out podcast. I'm absolutely delighted today with two fantastic guests. We've got Dee Nape, and Dee will introduce herself in a second. And we've also got Pumid Bandara. And we're really, really excited to talk about a really important topic today, looking at the relationship between domestic violence and suicide risk. So first of all, can I do some, Donna, welcome. So Dee, do you only say a bit about who you are? So welcome first to the podcast, Dee. So we can maybe tell us a bit about who you are and your sort of journey thus far in the suicide research, suicide prevention field.
1: Okay, yeah. So yeah, I'm Zalika uh, Nipes, people call me Dee. I'm a suicide and self-harm epidemiologist. I'm based at the University of Bristol. I currently co-lead the Suicide and Self-Harm Research Group here. And I have focused primarily on suicide and self-harm in low and middle income countries. I started my research journey in this area on a project in Sri Lanka. And that's kind of paved the way into looking at and understanding what contributes to suicide and self-harm in these contexts. And that's, again, essentially how I've ended up where I am.
0: So obviously, I know you, Dee, so I know a bit about your your journey, but for for others who don't, or listeners who don't. So how did you get into, well, how did the link with Sri Lanka happen and that research in Sri Lanka?
1: Just by pure chance, actually. I ended up, I was working on an epidemiology project. I did a master's in public health. I got to the end of my master's and I decided that and my contract at the University of Cardiff, which was where it was, ended. And I wanted to go travelling. That was the real reason that I uh, ended up in Sri Lanka. I was uh, looking for productive ways of maybe doing some traveling. And I was put in contact with somebody who was doing a global project. I essentially just was asking around to find out if anyone was doing anything I could just kind of tag on to. And it, by chance, it happened to be in Sri Lanka. And uh, I my parents are originally from Sri Lanka. So if there was a link. It seemed like this is a great chance for me to you know, go back. Uh, and uh, maybe do something in trying to understand where you know where my parents come from. So that's essentially how I ended up in Sri Lanka. I went there for three three months as an initial project. Ended up staying for nearly two years. And yeah, the, I guess the rest is history.
0: Yeah, no, and, and such important work you've done in Sri Lanka over the years, and uh, as really seminal work. Those of you who haven't read it, the seminal work that Dee has published on. Obviously, pesticides in the context of Sri Lanka and recent. If you haven't read it, the recent Lancet seminar on suicide. I think it's called the Lancet seminar on suicide and self-harm. I can't remember the full title. D, what's the full title? It's the Lancet, Lancet seminar, seminar on
1: suicide and, suicide suicide and self-harm.
0: Harm. Yeah, thanks for that, Rory. <laughs> yeah, no, it's a no, it's a really important read. And and actually, what's really interesting about it is how it it's it, it spotlights some particular topics. And one of those is looking at low-middle-income countries. And so that's really, really important. Okay, T, we'll come back to you in, in a second. Pumi, over to you yourself now. So thanks a million for agreeing, because we're recording this in the UK at, at around lunchtime. And Pumi is in, in Australia. <laughs> yes. And it's, I think, just past just past 11pm and the quarter past 11 at night. So thanks a million for staying up late. So Pumi, if you could just tell us a bit about who you are and similar to Dee, your journey in suicide research and prevention thus far.
2: Sure. Thanks, Rory, for having me. It's a privilege to be able to talk about this. I am a little bit nervous. I have a bit of imposter syndrome,
0: but it's it's very
2: exciting to be here and to be able to talk about this. So I'm I'm my name is Pimi Bandara. I am actually a, a WHO consultant within the Department of Mental Health and Substance Use. I joined the WHO earlier this year. I'm working on suicide prevention, but just prior to that, I had completed my PhD looking at domestic violence and uh, suicidal behaviour in Sri Lanka. So I did that over a period of four years, and that involved actually being based in Sri Lanka for about a year, collecting data. That became really the foundation of my PhD.
0: And so, how did you? So, so again, same question back as I asked, askedi. So, how did you have that focus? in Sri Lanka as well and yeah. specifically on the topic that you focused on.
2: Yeah, I mean I've had a bit of a convoluted pathway to get here. I I kind of did my undergraduate in science and arts and I studied neuroscience. So I had always had an interest in how the mind works, but also art history. So it might sound like a very weird combination, but connected in some ways. But it was really when I started my master's in international public health that I became really interested in global mental health. I remember attending a lecture on suicide in low and middle income countries, and I was really struck by the serious neglect in terms of research and funding in that part of the world. And I remember there was a slide on actually suicides in Sri Lanka and it really kind of struck me how Sri Lanka was able to reduce its suicides over a period of 20 years. But, I mean, my background is Sri Lankan, so the first thing that I did was immediately Google everything to do with Sri Lanka and suicide. But what I found striking was that there wasn't a lot of epidemiological evidence looking at the social risk factors like domestic violence, poverty at the time. Obviously, since then, Dalika has done considerable work looking at some of those social risk factors. But that really is what sparked my interest. And then I went on to try and look for supervisors who could support me in that work. And I was introduced to Professor Andrew Page, who then put me in touch with Delika Knipe. And I have a kind of similar story to Delika in that I went to Sri Lanka and, and within a few days she she gave me this opportunity to coordinate a, a case control study. And so that's why I was there for for almost a year coordinating that study.
0: Oh, so you were a part-timer, really, then. You only had a year and, and D did two years. So not, yes. not that it's competition, obviously. <laughs> so just a quick question then on just for the listener's benefit. So you so you made the point there about the positive news story about suicide rates decreasing in Sri Lanka over the last yes. 20 years. So I'm just not saying we're in sort of, I know it's awful talking about world maps on these things, but in, where, where what rates in terms of, what is the rate of suicide in Sri Lanka, broadly speaking? does Either you know off the top of your head, I assume you do. Yep, so, jump so, in then, John,
1: John, 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 in, Dee. Yeah, at the moment, the, the rate of suicide in Sri Lanka is around 15 per 100,000. And that's above the global average. But it's down from a rough, roughly about 42 per 100,000 in the mid-90s. So oh, it's kind wow. of a dramatic reduction.
0: Really, is traumatic. I mean, if you think about that, obviously we think about the world. The world average. I mean, that's mar- I mean, that's quite a bit higher. I mean, and even if you think about the UK context, I know trying not to be UK centric, but even the fifteen and per hundred thousand is about uh, obviously fifty percent higher than the UK average, broadly speaking over a number of years. So, but um, and so just before we get on to the, the domestic violence stuff, then, so Pima, just one last question for you on the Sri Lankan context, then. So have we any sense of what contributed to that reduction? Is it regulations to do with pesticides?
2: Yeah, so it was the progressive banning of highly hazardous pesticides. So in 1995, Sri Lanka had some of the highest suicide rates in the world. And the president then decided to put a task force together to involve various sectors to work together on reducing access to pesticides and and the most effective way they did that was through actual bans national bans on highly hazardous pesticides
0: mm-hmm. okay hopefully that the decrease will, will continue in, in the years ahead okay so thanks for, and so let's move on to the sort of topic that we're here really to focus on today and and obviously do with domestic violence and suicide risk And one thing struck me recently in living in the UK, I did, there was a Channel 4 News, it was one of the main news programs. They did a feature, a really in-depth feature, looking at domestic violence and suicide risk. And I was really pleased to see that, but I was quite surprised by the way it was framed. It was framed in a way as if we hadn't established this relationship before. And 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 I, I was surprised at that because I know that we've done we published a systematic review on it. One of my PhD students, Jennifer McLaughlin, I think it was in 2012, so over well, 10, 12, 10 years ago, published a review on this. And it was very clear to us that there is a, a really distinct relationship. So I just so my first question maybe is has there been a so I, I'm, I'm sort of doing this back to front. So I want to ask first of all, maybe D first. So has there been a step change in interest? In trying to understand this relationship better is the first question. But then maybe to but this way of thinking about back to front is but maybe before you answer that question, it would be helpful just to define what we mean by domestic violence because there's lots of different terms out there in the literature on because there's whatever interpersonal violence, whatever intimate partner violence, there's different ways. So maybe can we maybe start with that D with a definition and then come back to that question I asked in a very convoluted way?
1: mm mm-hmm. Well, definitions, terminologies, I think here we, we in the suicide prevention field have this challenge. And I think it it extends actually to also the domestic abuse, domestic violence, intimate partner violence community as well. But I'd say that for me, the, the terminology that I use when I'm thinking of domestic violence is domestic violence is any act of violence or abuse that causes physical, sexual or psychological harm mm. per- perpetrated by any household member against an adult that's kind of the terminology that I've used and I think that's also uh, probably reflects the the sort of terms that PUMI has used and we take this perspective of household members as opposed to just the intimate partner because in many lower middle income settings it's not nuclear families that exist more often than not there are sort of extended family members living within a household and that actually can be the source of uh, domestic violence as opposed to just the intimate partner so that's, no, that's the, really help- the definition that you are no,
0: That's for. really helpful so then so then in terms of then the, the question then Dee the other question so has there been this growth and interest in research and trying to understand and tackle this
1: yeah, so I think, Rory, when when I was kind of delving into this, I did come across your review. And that's been one of the few reviews, actually, that have uh, brought together the, the evidence around suicidal behaviour and intimate partner violence, domestic violence. But one of the things, I guess, even from your review, um, if I'm going to be quoting this correctly, was that there was this lack of higher quality evidence. Perhaps there were more studies looking at suicidal thoughts, but not so much on suicide attempts and suicide death. There was a considerable lack of evidence. So it's there, there is this evidence body that's kind of growing over time. And I think in the UK, especially, there's been a real focus on domestic violence. And I think the COVID-19 pandemic has really highlighted domestic violence as a particular issue that we need to be addressing. And at the same time, suicide has come up higher up the agenda as well in terms of, during the COVID-19 pandemic. Both of those issues got a lot of traction and mm-hmm. interest. And I think that it's just that sort of, I don't want to use the word, perfect storm, but it's that kind of bringing together these two issues that's brought to higher up the agenda. And it has got, I guess, media and social interest in this particular
0: topic. No, that, yeah, that makes sense. So just building on then what Dee said. So what do we know then, right? Well, there's lots of gaps in our, our knowledge and understanding and that totally... There's not enough research on looking at the relationship with with suicide deaths in particular, but taking a global perspective. So what do we know globally or or do we know about the relationship? Because certainly if my memory of the review we did, was most of the studies were high income countries. And so, so what do we know then about globally about the relationship?
2: Yeah, so like you said, it has been studied and most of the research that has emerged has come from high income countries. So there is a really well documented association between IPV or domestic violence and and self harm. There is though evidence that is emerging from low and middle income countries. So a WHO multi country study that included 15 countries, eight of which were from low and middle income countries, they found a really strong association between exposure to intimate partner violence among women and suicide attempts. And this association, the order of magnitude, was actually not very different to the strength of the association found in high-income countries. Um, There are, of course, individual studies that have been conducted in India, the Philippines, Malaysia, Sri Lanka, my own PhD research, that have showed similar associations between domestic violence and self-harm.
0: Is the nature of the relationship different in in the sense so Dean made the point about that wider definition of not just a partner, right? It's looking at the wider family yeah. unit. So 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 is there or do we know who the perpetrators tend to be and who the victims tend to be in and yeah. across the world in different, in different settings?
2: Yeah, so this is where it gets a little bit murky. The definition and tools that I used to measure domestic violence really vary across the world. The challenge that we're facing in low- and middle-income countries or the studies that are coming from low- and middle-income countries is they don't tend to use validated tools to measure domestic violence, and the perpetrator is also rarely identified in these studies. So it's difficult to really say definitively how how the the violence varies.
0: Okay. And then so going back then to the, the context of covid so, yeah, I saw lots of headlines and some research looking at obviously our concerns. Us in the suicide prevention field were really concerned about the impact of a perfect, perfect storm, using that again of lockdowns and domestic violence. So, but to maybe dig back to you, do we know that that emerged in the way we thought it would emerge in that relationship? Or do we know? I mean, that's I'm, I'm just genuinely just don't know the answer to that question.
1: Yeah, I think so. In terms of suicide, we know from the d- countries that we do have data, which is primarily high income, but some low middle income countries as well, that the rate of suicide doesn't appear to have increased during the pandemic compared mm-hmm. to sort of pre-pandemic trends. And that was the concern that, you know, you'd see this rise in suicide during the the pandemic. And in domestic violence, a similar sort of uh, concern that you know domestic violence rates would increase and the the level of abuse would increase. There's some evidence from different countries that suggests that this just has happened. There has been more uh, victimisation and less help seeking, but the link between the two things has perhaps not been explored in mm-hmm. as much detail. So I can't. I don't think I could say very much about that.
0: Yeah, yeah. And then related to that, then I'm just saying coming back to yourself is. I mean, with the researcher hat on, one of the things we tried to do when we were thinking about it all those years ago was, what's the mechanism? How is it that domestic violence is increasing risk of suicide? And of course, we know it's devastating, it's awful. But in terms of sort of the broader context, is some of your research tapped trying to understand that relationship better?
2: So I can't really say my specific research looked into that in in much detail, but as kind of part of my thesis, of course, I looked at the literature and some of the other kind of factors that were involved included adverse childhood experiences, having a pre-existing psychiatric morbidity. So there seems to be kind of this bi-directional relationship between IPV and suicide and self-harm and mental health problems. Alcohol misuse has also kind of been implicated in the relationship, not only by the individual experiencing the intimate partner violence or domestic violence, but also just alcohol misuse within the household. Poverty as well, or economic stress has also been identified as a kind of factor involved in in the relationship between IPV and suicide and self-harm, but also really interestingly, social support as well. So as part of my study, I looked at I included support within the model, and we found that it really dampened the associations between IPV and and self-harm. And so what that kind of signaled to me is that potentially social support could be a protective factor. In other parts of my research, I also looked at the, the links between social support and experience of domestic violence and what we found was that men and women who were perceived to have less social support within their community and within their household were more likely to report experiencing domestic
0: violence. No, that's, well, that's really helpful. Thanks for that. And then go back into thinking again then about how we go about trying to understand this relationship, I assume across different countries of the world, because of cultural reasons and stigma and shame, that the reporting of domestic violence is highly well, it can be unreliable. And do we know much about that, or how we, or how can we better quantify? they maybe we're to quantify that relationship first of all? To we to we have a some sense of actually what is the the real prevalence of domestic violence in our communities first of all, and then. Or, or, or what can we do to make sure that, that that we get a better understanding of how common it is so we can obviously intervene and do something about it?
1: Yes. The issue of stigma, I think, does definitely come into play when we're talking about this issue. But I wouldn't necessarily, well, in certain patriarchal societies, the stigma might be much greater. So women, especially who are the more likely to be the victims of domestic abuse, are less likely to report it when it is occurring for you know, because there is this shame associated. But when we look at the international literature on, ter- in terms of like the prevalence of domestic violence across the globe, you get very consistent estimates of the prevalence of domestic violence, particularly in women, which seems to be the focus, mm-hmm. and primarily intimate partner violence because domestic abuse is, with the sort of wider violence angle that I, I talked about earlier hasn't really been explored. But it's roughly about one in five, so it's about twenty percent of women will have experienced domestic violence at some point in their lifetime.
0: Is that a sorry d? is that across the, is that globally?
1: Yeah, globally. so you get fairly consistent e- estimates for that rate of domestic violence across the I mean, globe ho-
0: that is horrifying. but I imagine that must still be an underestimate. Yes, definitely. So have we any sense to so have we any sense of what the real figure is then? or is that and what's so, so difficult to to quantify. But, but but I assume, or have there been attempts to try and get out the real figure?
1: Not that I'm aware of. I mean, it's very hard to say, well, what's the real figure? Because it always will depend on someone disclosing. So unless someone discloses, you'll never know.
0: So I'm just thinking of, is there have there been attempts to triangulated methods? And if you you get some sense of maybe what the error might be or... But no, I I and I, I I totally accept, it. and that's I mean it's a difficult question to answer. But if there's twenty percent reporting it now, I mean that it's just what the real figure is reporting it in these sorts of ways in existing methodologies we're using. My concern is is much much higher. So then moving on, then so like one in five people affected, huge huge numbers of people, and then never, and that's obviously. That statistic is just referring to the the person who's on the receiving end of the domestic violence. That doesn't account for the ripple effects if it's in a family unit of children witnessing, for example, or other members of the family. So it really just looks at the scale of the challenge we face here. So then going then hopefully to try and think what we can do to tackle this awful, awful problem is what do we know or do we know what works? Maybe start with you in this one in terms of, what interventions do we know, or have there, there been good interventions or ways in which we can tackle this?
2: I guess there's multiple ways that we can tackle this if we if I just think about it from a suicide prevention perspective, I think just raising the profile of domestic violence as a priority for suicide prevention is definitely something that's worth attention and just to just to make a note that it's actually one in three women that experience violence
0: one in three women sorry yeah, sorry yeah
2: and making sure that domestic violence is really embedded in national suicide prevention strategies. Another way that we can kind of raise the profile is ensuring that clinical guidelines around self-harm include asking about domestic violence and offering support. And so the WHO has produced really comprehensive clinical guidelines on how to identify and, and Provide follow up support to people experiencing domestic violence in a safe and compassionate way. We know that research from even from low and middle income countries suggests that mental health interventions and interventions around alcohol and substance use can be effective in preventing IPV. So really, that health sector response is can be quite effective. I can go on. There are broader kind of strategies that can be implemented. Go on, go on. <laughs> So the broadest strategies that can be implemented outside of the health sector, of course, because a lot of women don't access health services. So if we kind of think about uh, that socio-ecological model that we use in public health, where you have the individual, household, community and societal levels, broadly at the, the societal level, there are kind of interventions that have been shown to be effective that are focused on changing social norms and attitudes. So a very famous trial was conducted in Uganda called the SASA trial, which was a community mobilization intervention that um, involved community ambassadors and training frontline workers around IPV prevention and disseminating learning materials within the community about intimate partner violence. And that showed reductions in in IPV. Other interventions include improving communication skills, problem solving skills within relationships, responding to situational triggers. So I mentioned earlier poverty and financial insecurity is a key risk factor. So interventions around microfinance, but also coupling them with gender equity training. So you're not just providing economic empowerment, because in some cases, this has been shown to escalate the violence when there's been a disparity between husband and wife. So mm. coupling those interventions with gender equity
0: training as well. Well, thanks. Really, really important and really important interventions. Maybe, Dee, back to you, just two questions sort of related. But before I do those questions, just so we get the statistics absolutely correct, then. So <laughs> one in three, so it's one in three women are victims of domestic violence and is a 20% then across just the whole population Is
1: yeah apologies so it is so when I said it's it's more likely to be women it is more likely yeah. to be women but if you're if you're looking at the whole population it's sort of one in five so including men yeah. within that but what's important though within when we're looking at that and you talked Rory about the ripple effect so we're not looking at perpetrators Within this, and as we're looking at people who are the victims of domestic abuse, yeah. and the perpetrators are also more likely to attempt suicide or self-harm, mm. and more likely to die by suicide. And we are actually at this population group who. I would say, as a, as a society, we typically don't focus on, but are actually an important picture when we're thinking about domestic violence. That ripple effect goes both ways, if that makes sense. It's not just you know the consequence of the victimization, it's it's the perpetrator as well, who will probably also have experienced violence in their yeah. kind of childhood as well. So it's,
0: yeah, it's very complicated. Yeah, such an important message and a complicated, really complex story. And it's very, very similar to the, the bullying literature more broadly because obviously that we know that victims of bullying and obviously perpetrators of bullying are at increased risk of, of poor mental health as well, both of both groups. So then, D, so thanks for that, that clarification. So, just deep back to the two questions for you then. And one is, so what can we do? So what, what pumi talked about was the strategies to hopefully more preventative type strategies with more, much of what you were chatting about. But it'd be helpful to maybe say something about what we know works in terms of supporting survivors of domestic violence is that. let maybe if you can think about, maybe say a bit about that. And then my second question is: so we're all members of YASP. So D, I will, and be keen to see what you think. What role an organisation like YASP can be doing to tackle this problem?
1: Okay. Yep. Great. So in terms of the supporting the survivors of domestic violence or victims of domestic violence, if they're currently within that, I think from my perspective, I think the evidence has shown that people who are experiencing domestic violence are often afraid and don't want to disclose. So providing opportunities, if we're thinking from a healthcare perspective, providing opportunities for that disclosure, because without that disclosure, Mm -hmm. it's very hard to support somebody. But when that disclosure is made, make sure that appropriate services are provided for that individual and this isn't mental health I'm not saying it has to be mental health support I think it has to be interventions that are Mm -hmm. delivered from the domestic abuse society the communities that are around there the support because they can provide more trauma-informed support for those individuals the other thing I just wanted to point out also, in, and this is something that Pimi's also found in her picture, was that people who experience domestic violence are likely to self-harm and likely to present to services following that self-harm. And that also from the so the National Confidential Inquiry in the UK, they've also found that people who have died by suicide and who are in touch with mental health services and have experienced domestic violence, there is a higher rate of repeat self-harm in that population. So they're coming to services, they're engaging with services, but I'm also at the moment conducting another study because one of the findings we found from another study, which we did with a registry in the UK, was that when we looked at how many people who presented to services were asked if following their self-harm, if they were experiencing domestic violence, it was only 10% of that population were asked. So... There's a huge population who present to services who don't get asked about their experiences mm-hmm. of domestic violence. I think Hume correct me again if I get my statistics wrong here, but I think it was something like 50% of people who presented to self-point self um, self-harm services in Sri Lanka had were experiencing domestic violence yeah. at that time. Is that right? Yep. Yeah. Right. 50% so, <laughs> so in the UK and <laughs> national
0: Only 10% in the UK. No, that were asked. They were asked. To me. They only ten percent were asked. As I'm saying, only ten percent were asked in the UK. Yeah. I and mean, that's that's incredible. That's yeah. funny because I remember, back, though, and this is slightly off tangent, but when my wife was pregnant, that we when we were going to the meetings or for the antenatal classes, so there was always that my wife was always brought in separately and asked was asked about was there any domestic violence going on. And that so, so certainly from my own personal experience that's happening. So I'm just horrified to learn that only 10% more broadly have been asked if they're in contact with whatever the clinical services are. Thanks, for that. thanks for that Then, Then the other question then I asked, which is that question about what role an organization like YASP play.
1: Yep. So that was my lead, in, Rory, and you—you—you brought me nicely into this because one of the things that was emerging from this study, where we're we're trying to find out why people are not asking in clinical services, is that there's this this lack of awareness that there is an association within between domestic violence and self harm, and you've raised it as well, Rory. You know the evidence is there, and then, but there's a—I'm not entirely clear why, despite the evidence. It's not really talked about. I've been to several suicide and self-harm conferences. I've been to many I asked ones. But there is not a focus on domestic violence in these conferences. And there isn't, you know, I think Pumi and I and some colleagues in the recent European Conference on Suicidal Behaviour, we, we put in a symposium for mm-hmm. domestic violence and suicide. And we had some attendance, which is great. But given the importance of this topic and how prevalent it is in people who self harm and who people who die by suicide, we didn't have a great turnout, and the majority of the attendants were, and Pumi pointed this out to me, was they were female. Mm-hmm. It's just not being taken up, I think. And so I think for IAS, if IAS can raise this as a particular issue in the same way that mental health issues are raised as being important, this this social driver for Suicide and self-harm is really important.
0: No, no, I, no, I, I, I mean, I, I think here, here is what I say. I think we should try and do more as an organisation. And but I wonder if it part of it is the lack of awareness because so, for example, as somebody, I published. Well, I was a co-author in a review, PCC student, some years ago, and I'm still surprised at the thirty percent. So I don't think that message has got out there. And 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 in the same way that. If you look at trauma in general, there's lots of trauma. Frequently appears in our conferences and in in, in the scientific literature, and actually, so this is another just another obviously type of a tra- really traumatic event. So I think or events in an ongoing context. So I think I think it is really important that we try and get that message out there that this is a really really crucial factor, mm-hmm. and it's because I mean it because I, I mean I, when I was struck by. Premium, mean, you're talking about then the, all these different intersectional characteristics. So, I mean, tackling domestic violence will probably, if you tackle that effectively, it will hopefully help mitigate risk of a whole range of other factors, maybe tackling inequality, tackling access to services. There's a range of different ways in which that can be effective. So, so yeah, no, I would definitely support your quality for us to try and do more, to try and raise a profile of this. Because, because it's not because it's a global phenomenon as well. I mean, that's as also as an international organization, I think that's we're always keen to make sure we're trying to raise these really important global issues. Okay, so in terms of our podcast, let me sort of bring it sort of to a close now in a second, but I've got two sort of last slightly tangential questions. But before I do, are there any other issues related to domestic violence and suicide risk that either of you would like to raise that we haven't touched on yet? in our questions. They don't have to be, but just give you an opportunity if there is anything else you would like to to say on the matter.
2: Um, I might just add that it is really a, a global public health issue. IPV is pervasive, domestic violence is pervasive across the world. It's not just an issue of low and middle income countries. We're seeing this association of a similar magnitude across studies across the world. So it really does require attention.
0: No, that's a point really well made. No, thanks for for raising that again and really highlights the scale of the importance of this topic. Okay, then. So just trying to bring it to you sort of, because it's pretty heavy, heavy-duty topics thus far, but maybe try and end with two sort of more light-hearted way questions. So maybe, Dee, back to you. So I know you're obviously a really dedicated suicide prevention researcher, but if you weren't doing academia, what would you have you, any, have you ever thought, given yourself a sort of what would I do differently or what would I do if I wasn't doing this job?
1: <laughs> well, what would I be doing if I wasn't doing this job? I would I have two alternative careers that I would have loved to have done. And the first one is to be a carpenter. I really enjoy woodworking. And so I would have loved to have done that. But my parents didn't think that was a, an appropriate job for me to do. So I didn't do it. <laughs> the other is, is is to be a dancer. So those two things, I would have loved to have been a professional dancer. Because. And I've also now, my son has come into the room, so that will be yes. the noise that you might be able to hear.
0: <laughs> <laughs> so hold on, but better still, Dee, you could be a dancing carpenter.
1: I could be a dancing carpenter. That could be a hazardous, I think, with some of the power <laughs> well, you might be using. But
0: <laughs> Maybe maybe, maybe not to be recommended, perhaps, but two great suggestions. So Pumi, the same question to you. Alternative career, if you weren't doing this,
2: I think I might hark back to what I was saying before. Something to do with art history, maybe museum curator, or something in wildlife photography. I do love nature, so something
0: like that. Yeah, great suggestions. Great suggestions. Okay, very last question, and then I'll let both of you let both of you go. I'll start with you this time, Pumi. So reflecting that you're a bit older than 16 now, but let's thinking about reflecting <laughs> reflecting back then. So, what advice would you give your 16 year old self. What have you learned in, in the intervening years?
2: I would say chill out, girl. Stop worrying so much. It all is gonna turn out okay in the end. Even if the world seems like it's crumbling, you'll get through it.
0: Yeah, great advice, great advice. And Dee, same question for you. What advice would you give your sixteen year old self?
1: I think what I would say is that it's it's similar to probably what people was saying, just stop taking yourself so seriously. But also that that you can't plan everything and actually you know. Bands are not always the best way forward. And sometimes you just have to be a bit more flexible and take
0: opportunities as they come. Yeah, great. So nice, wise words, I think, to end on, I think. So really, on behalf of YASP, huge thanks to both of you for taking the time today to join us on our podcast. And obviously, if you are affected by any of the issues we touched on today in terms of domestic violence or suicide risk, so you go to our website, YASP Info, there's a list of helplines available in different countries across the world. So huge thanks from me and, and I hope people find the conversation of interest. Thank you very much. And thanks a million. So goodbyes from Dee and goodbye from Pumi. Bye. Bye.